All right, the title of tonight's message is You Have Need of Endurance. You Have Need of Endurance. I want to look through the book of Hebrews tonight. I want to do uh, an overview of the book. Um, And then I want to focus on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, for a little bit of my time. Um, Several days ago, someone walked into my office at uh, the rescue mission where I work, and he's a guy who graduated from the program. It's a 10-month program. He graduated, and what we encourage the guys is you're, and we inform them that you're going to face battles not only here when you're in a life recovery program, but after you graduate, you're going to face trials in the world. As Christians, we're going to face trials no matter where we're at. We need endurance no matter where we are. And so this graduate walked into my office and he sat down and he took a big breath, a deep breath, and he said, I'm having a lot of struggles. He says, I'm struggling with my family. I'm struggling at work. I'm struggling with my schooling. I have court dates coming up. And this guy is a strong believer. He's known to witness around the rescue mission with the homeless people. He's going to Bible college, but he was struggling and what I told him was, you need endurance, brother. And I encouraged him in the Lord. I told him to wait on the Lord. I told him to stay in God's word, to stay in fellowship, to stay in prayer, to pass the test. These are tests that come our way in life. As 1 Peter 4.12 states, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or the fiery trial that comes among you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Do you ever feel like that in life? This is so strange. Why is this temptation coming my way? Why is this trial coming my way? Why is this difficulty coming my way? And so as he was confessing all these things to me and struggling and getting real with me, at one point he said he had to pull off to the side of the road driving home from work and he said, I just started cursing. And he said, I don't, that's not like me, but I'm just struggling with so many different things. And he goes, I told the Lord I'm sorry, but I need help. And I prayed with him, I hugged him, and I encouraged him, and I pointed him to the Lord. And in Hebrews it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, for who the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And we're going to look at that text in a little bit, but Jesus is our ultimate example of what we are to do in the midst of the storms and the trials and the hardships of life. And we all go through different things at different times. Um, Right now, I've got three kids working a lot of hours, dealing with guys that are unstable, some with mental health issues. They're coming off the streets. They're coming out of jail. Um, They have court and family issues and drug abuse issues and, and just trying to be patient with them and labor alongside them and love them. And it can be wary. And then you get home and the, I got my son who is full of energy. He's six years old, Leland. I love him. I think he's here right now. <laughs> and uh, I get home and he just wants to wrestle. He's like, Daddy, let's wrestle. And he loves to play and he has so much energy. And I have to put my feelings and my emotions of a rough day at work aside and say, I need to spend time with my son. I need to love my son. And I need to cry out to the Lord for help, for energy, for stamina, for endurance. And spend that time with him because God calls me to raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I need to spend this quality time with them. And it's a joy, but it's also wearisome at times. It also can be hard. 
but God is with me. He strengthens me. He helps me. The word endurance in the New Testament can be defined as being steadfast, being constant, a person who is unswerved from their deliberate purpose and loyalty to faith and piety, even by the greatest trials, temptations, and sufferings. Um, There's two Greek words that I saw that represent endurance um, in the New Testament. Hupomone, hupomeno. It means hypo, under, meno, to remain, to remain under. There's a burden, if you will. There's a trial. There's a difficulty, and you remain steadfast. You remain constant. You keep moving forward in the Lord. You don't look to the right or the left. You stand your ground. You resist the devil. You resist temptation. You flee from sin, and you keep your eyes on the prize. You keep moving forward. That's what it means to endure. It's used in Luke 8.15. Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower. It says, but the seed... The seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word with a good and virtuous heart and hold it firmly and produce fruit with endurance or produce fruit with perseverance. That's another way to translate that Greek word, to remain, to abide. Luke twenty one nineteen, Jesus said, by your endurance, hupomone, you will gain your lives. He's speaking of strong persecution, end times, afflictions come, and you endure, and by that you will gain your life. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were in much need of endurance. They were tempted to go back to the law. They were tempted to throw away the faith. They were tempted to live in sin. They were being persecuted. They were being mocked. Their property, as we will see in a minute, in a couple minutes, was taken away from them. They were being shamed. They were suffering great conflict. And the temptation was to abandon Christianity, to abandon Christ, to abandon their faith, and to go back to the old way of life, to go back to the Jewish system, the Mosaic law. That was the trial before them. And the writer to the Hebrews is pleading with these people. He's pleading with these Christians to stay strong in the Lord to keep the faith, to not go back, and to endure until the end. And he says in Hebrews 13, 22, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. He gives them 13 chapters, an exhortation, which is an urging, a pleading. It's an exhorting to keep the faith. He spends a whole chapter on the faith, Hebrews chapter 11, right? The faith hall of fame. By faith, this person did this. By this, by faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, and then he lists many more at the end of the chapter, David and Gideon and Samson. He says, I wish I had more time. I'd get into all of their lives as well. He wants to go on and on showing these Hebrew Christians as to those who came before us, those who came before them, this great cloud of witnesses who ran the race, who finished strong, who kept the faith. One of the main points of the book of Hebrews is who Jesus is and what he did for us and that it's far superior to the old covenant. He's so much better. Therefore, cling to him all the more and don't go back. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is urging them to do. That's what he's pleading with them. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, and we're going to be bouncing around the book of Hebrews 
for a little bit here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, it says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. That word better caught my attention as I was reading through the book of Hebrews. As I was reading through this text here, you see it twice right there. I spent several hours reading through the book of Hebrews, focusing on certain things. I was looking for reoccurring themes in this book. And I felt like after several hours of spending time in this book, I was still just scratching the surface. I was still reading commentaries and reading different articles, and I felt like I was still just barely scratching the surface of the depth and the richness and how profound this letter is. Whoever wrote this book, some think it's Paul, some have said Apollos. There's been dispute throughout church history. Many believe it was Paul. Whoever it was, they had a very vast understanding of the old covenant, of the law, and of God's word. Now this word better, better hope, verse 19, verse 22, better covenant. The word better, I noticed, is used 12 times in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.4 talks about Jesus having become as much better than the angels. Hebrews 7.7, 7, the lesser is blessed by the better or the greater. If you remember, that's Melchizedek, who is a picture of Jesus, who blessed Abraham. Hebrews 7.19, there is a bringing in of a better hope. We just saw that. Hebrews 7.22, the guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews 8.6, the mediator of a better covenant. Hebrews 8.6, again, has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9.23, themselves with better sacrifices. Hebrews 10.34, to have yourselves a better possession. Hebrews 11.16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Hebrews 11.35, that they might that they might obtain a better resurrection. Hebrews 11.40, something better for us. And then Hebrews 12.24, Jesus' blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Why does he mention the word better 12 times? Jesus is better. His blood is better. His promises are better. The covenant inaugurated in his blood is better. He's better than anything. He's better than anyone. He's better than the angels. So why would you go back to the old covenant? Why would you go back to the types and the shadows and the world system and the things of the world and to your sin when you have the better promise, the better hope in Christ? He's trying to get them to focus on Jesus, on eternity, on the promises. Hebrews 8 verse 13 talks about the new covenant and it says of the old covenant, he has made the first obsolete. He's persuading them, he's trying at least to persuade them throughout this letter not to go back to the law. It's obsolete. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away your sin. Jesus died once and for all. He's the propitiation for our sins. Look 
to Christ. He's the only one that can save you. Recently at the men's retreat, I did a message titled Exalting Christ with Our Lives. And what shocked me was how many times Jesus Christ is mentioned in the book of Philippians. And I always thought of Philippians as a book of joy. That was the first thing that came to my mind. And it is a book of joy. Paul uses that word joy or rejoice, I think, some 20 times in the book of Philippians. But he uses Jesus' name over 40 times. I think it's close to 50 times in those four short chapters, Paul references Jesus Christ in the book of Philippians. If you remember the verse 20 of Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then right after that, he goes on to say, to go be with Christ is very much better. Interesting. All throughout that book, he points back to Jesus. And I went verse by verse through chapter 1, I think it was 20 times in the first chapter, Paul references Jesus. Chapter 2 says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. You get to chapter 3, and Paul's like, I've got my eye on the goal and the prize that's set before me. I'm looking to Christ. Each chapter focused on Jesus. And so what interested me, and what I was, when I was studying the book of Hebrews, is how often Jesus is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. In each chapter. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, right out of the gate in verse 2, who does the author mention? Hebrews 1 verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He goes on to say the angels worship Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 8, Thy throne, O God, it says of the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. In verse 10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His days will not come to an end. Who does the book of Hebrews, the writer to the book of Hebrews, want them to focus on right from the beginning, Jesus Christ. He's heir of all things. The world was made through him. He's called God in verse 8. He upholds all things by the power of his word. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The angels worship him. His throne is forever and ever. He'll remain forever. Focus on Christ. He wants to show them the beauty, the power, the majesty of Jesus Christ so that when they're focused on him, they're not going to want to go back to the old covenant law. They're not going to want to trust in those sacrifices and those futile things, those things that have become obsolete. They're going to want to seek Christ and focus on him and strive to enter the kingdom. There's another theme in the book of Hebrews that if you're ready to take a little journey with me, in chapters 2 through 9, if you go to chapter 2, verse 17, something I didn't realize before, referring to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He satisfied the wrath of God for the people. Many pastors, many churches, they don't want to talk about the wrath of God anymore. God's all love. Well, God is all love, but they don't want to talk about his holiness. They don't want to talk about his 
holy anger. They don't want to talk about his hatred for sin. They don't want to talk about how the Father poured out his wrath on Christ and Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for us so that the wrath of God's not poured out on, our, on us as believers. And that's what it means that he is the propitiation for the sins of the people. We are now at peace with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He's our great high priest. You think of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And many times we talk about how he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, but one of the things that the book of Hebrews highlights is that Jesus is our high priest. He's mentioned here in verse 17 as the merciful and faithful high priest. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What is apostle? Sent one. Sent from the Father to earth to fulfill the Father's will to die on the cross for our sins. Go to chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Go to chapter 5, verse 10. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You go to chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We're seeing a theme going on here. We're seeing a pattern. Go to chapter 7, verse 24. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have, a, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Now look at chapter 10, verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He wants them to have a full assurance, a full faith to know that Jesus is their high priest, that Jesus is our high priest, that they don't need to look to the priests who continually die year after year, who are offering the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away our sins, but he wants us to get our attention on Jesus, our high priest who offered himself on the cross for our sins so that we can be saved. It's beautiful. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's our only hope. He lives to intercede for us. John chapter 17 is titled the high priestly prayer. Jesus, that's the longest prayer in the gospels. He cries out to the father. He intercedes for us. He as our high priest goes before us and pleads for the father that we would not be lost, that we would be one, that we would be united in the faith. Jesus is our high priest. And the writer to the Hebrews labors to get this point across to them. The old covenant cannot save you. 
do not go back. So because he's our high priest, we have boldness to go, according to verse chapter 4, verse 16, unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So because Jesus is our high priest and because the Hebrews, hopefully by this point, understood that, they realized they can go directly to the Father. They're going through a trial. They're going through a difficulty and they can go to the Father because their high priest, the forerunner, has gone into the veil. The veil ripped in two when Jesus was crucified and now we can go boldly into the presence of the Father. So the writer is pleading with them to stand firm in the faith. You see phrases in the book of Hebrews like, do not harden your hearts, hold fast, let us fear, encourage one another, draw near, be diligent. He's exhorting them. You read chapters three and chapters four, he says, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden, three times, three separate times, do not harden your hearts, do not harden your hearts, do not harden your hearts. And he points back to the Old Testament and he says, look at to what happened to those people Those Jews in the Old Covenant who did harden their hearts, who stopped following after God, who drifted from the faith, what happened to them? That same thing will happen to you and to I and to those who this letter was written if they don't keep the faith. And so he's pleading with them, no matter what you go through, keep the faith. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I like how he says brethren there. Not take care, non-believers. Take care, brethren. He's speaking to the holy brethren. He's speaking to fellow Christians. You could fill our, each of our names in there as you say that verse. Take care, fill in your name. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Serious warnings in the scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, one of the strongest warnings in this letter Verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. He wants us to understand that you can't just go back and live in your sin and everything's going to be okay. Even if that's what you read on Twitter today or Facebook or pastors are saying from their pulpits, you can live however you want because God loves you no matter what you do. That's not what the scripture teaches. And how are we to discern good and evil in these dark times when there's many false teachers, false pastors, false shepherds twisting the word of God and enticing people with their own desires? We need to know the scripture so that we can defend the faith, stay strong in the faith. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 32. He says, remember... But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. I want to spend a couple minutes on these several verses here. He's saying, remember those former days? Remember when you were first saved? Remember when you were on fire for the Lord? Remember when you were evangelizing? Remember when Christ was so beautiful to you and you were willing to do anything for him and all you wanted to do was spend time with him in prayer? And in the word, do you remember those former days when you were enlightened? What does that mean, when you were enlightened? 
When the light, when Jesus, who is the light of the world, came into your heart, your dark heart was turned to lightness. You became a new creation. You became a light of the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world now. And they were enlightened and they endured. As new believers, remember those former days when you endured. You persevered. You stood strong in the faith. You were not turned to the left or to the right, even though you endured a great conflict. That Greek word there is athlesis. It's where we get athletic, athletic contest. It's a combat. It's a fight. You are enduring this great conflict of sufferings. You were staying strong in the faith. You were moving forward. Verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Those several words in verse 33, being made a public spectacle, is actually from one Greek word. It's from the Greek word theatrizo or theatron. It's where we get the English word theater. They were ridiculing you. They were putting you in front of a theater, putting you on exhibit for public jest and mocking you to make a public show of. One commentary I read states it was a common custom among the Greeks and the Romans to lead criminals before they were put to death through the theater and thus to expose them to insults and reproaches of the multitude. They were making them a laughing stock, like a circus. Here, come up on the stage before you go to death and let everyone mock you, laugh at you, shame you, throw stuff at you, spit on you. Now we're going to put you to death. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, you were made a public spectacle. Do you remember those days? Do you remember when everyone was laughing at you and mocking you? And through reproaches and tribulations, you were enduring. Reproach means to disgrace someone's reputation. It suggests undeserved condemnation. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, For I think... God has exhibited us, the apostles, last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle, theatron. We have become a theater to the world, both to angels and to mankind. That's what we are. As Christians, we're a laughing stock to the world. We're like sheep led to the slaughter. Yet in Romans 8, it says we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was shamed and mocked and led to the cross, he was brought before the theater he endured. He kept his eyes on the prize. He kept moving forward. He despised the shame. We need to as well. Verse 33 talks about tribulations. Flipsis is the Greek word. Talks about being compressed, hemmed in. Internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, feeling like there's no way of escaped, no way of escape, anxiety, a burden of heart. You were enduring tribulations. You felt like you were hemmed in. You felt like there was no way out, yet you kept your eyes on Jesus. You kept moving forward. And then you see that word shares in verse 33, partly by becoming sharers, that Greek word, koinonos, it's from the Greek word koinonia, Your sharers, your fellowship is with those who are treated the same way. You were banding arm in arm. You became companions. You were looking out for one another. 
You weren't just moving forward by yourself in your faith. You were banding arm in arm and together saying, we are keeping our eyes on the prize. We're going to keep moving forward in this race. We can see the finish line. It's right over there. And we're not going to allow them, no matter what they do to us, to be pushed away, to fall back, to fall away. We're moving forward in the Lord together. It's beautiful. Get to verse 34. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Greek word there is sympatheo. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. It means to be affected with the same feeling as another, to have compassion for, to feel for. How do we feel when someone else is going through difficulty in life? How do you feel when your brother or sister in the Lord is going through a heavy trial? when they're struggling? Do you sit with them? Do you pray with them? Do you listen? Do you hurt as they hurt? Do you weep with those who weep? Or do we only rejoice with those who rejoice? Are we only ready to have the party, so to speak, but when people are hurting, we're nowhere to be found? He's saying, you showed sympathy. It's the same Greek word used in Hebrews 4.15, where it talks about how Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has compassion for us. He understands what we're going through because he went through very similar things during his life. He knows how we feel when we're hurting. He knows how we feel when we're struggling. He knows how we feel when we are fighting sin and temptations because he fought sin and temptation all throughout his life. And he was victorious. And he overcame, and because he overcame, and because he's seated at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us, he now strengthens us and empowers us to live a victorious life. The Apostle Paul says, I think in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm sorrowful, yet I'm always rejoicing. And he talks about how he continues to endure in the faith, even though he's like the scum of the earth to the world, dregs of the world. Mocked, beaten, spit upon. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. His life was in shambles according to the world. The world looked at him as nothing. But what really matters in life is what God thinks about us, right? Serving an audience of one. Serving our creator. I read an article. It was titled, What's the Farthest Anyone Has Ever Run Without Stopping? Whenever I go through the book of Hebrews, I like to use illustrations or look up illustrations that talk about running because you see that Jesus is our forerunner. You see that the race that is set before us in Hebrews 12, and so the writer to the book of Hebrews uses the same illustration that we're in a race, that we need to finish strong. And so what's the farthest anyone has ever run without stopping? I asked this question to the young adult group. I asked this question at work. One guy said three miles. I said, three miles? He said, oh, I thought you asked me how, how far the farthest I've ever run. Three miles. I said, oh, that's pretty good, three miles. But no, this guy, Dean Carnesis, on October 12th through October 15th, ran 350 miles, supposedly, without stopping. Across Northern California, he ran for 80 hours, 44 minutes, without a break. That's over three days running without a break. Just kept moving forward, kept moving forward. It said toenails were busting off. 
Every 50 miles, he had to change his shoes. So I don't know if he was hobbling while he's changing his shoes, still moving forward somehow. I'd like to see video footage of that. But somehow, he kept moving forward. He ate 40,000 calories over those three days. People would ride by next to him, handing him pizza, handing him bars, handing him Gatorades, handing him food, and he's just running nonstop. Once he got to the 300-mile mark, it says he was weaving and hallucinating. He went 50 more miles after that. Weaving, hallucinating, he hadn't slept for three days. Just, that's hard enough, right? Just stay up for three days straight and sit there on the couch and watch TV or something. That's hard enough. Let alone running, exerting energy, struggling. 350 miles I'm always astonished at the endurance, the diligence, the purposefulness, the loyalty that people in this world will undertake for physical things. Sports, athletics, Michael Phelps, they said he would be in the pool every day. He wouldn't miss, a, he wouldn't miss being in the pool from the age, I think it was like 11 to 20, he like didn't miss a day. For years and years and years, didn't matter birthday, didn't matter Christmas, didn't matter, holiday, whatever, I'm swimming. I want to be the best. Enduring, discipline. We need that in our Christian life. If they're doing it for a perishable thing, for a gold medal, for a trophy, for notoriety, for money, how much more do I need to practice diligence and endurance in my race with the Lord? So when I read these articles, it sparks a fire in my soul to do this for Christ. So when I'm tempted to go on my phone and look at something I shouldn't, I go, I'm going to endure. This man endured in this way. I can endure. When temptation's thrown at me, when difficulties are thrown at me in life, when trials are thrown at me, I'm moving forward. Yes, it's, I'm going to lose some spiritual toenails. Yes, I'm going to be spiritually hallucinating at times, going to the left and the right, weaving in and out, and I feel like I can't keep moving forward. But I need to remind myself that Jesus already finished the race. Our great cloud of witnesses finished the race. They kept striving. We can keep striving through Christ who lives in us. What is causing us to veer to the left or the right? What is causing us to give in to sin? You get to verse 34 and he talks about joyfully accepting the seizure of your property. I think about that in my life. If they came and just took my property, how would you react if the government came in and took your property? They were joyfully allowing them to seize their property. It reminded me in Acts when the disciples were persecuted, when they were whipped for Christ's sake, and it says they went away joyfully, saying, we suffered for Christ. What a joy it is and what an honor it is to suffer in the same, in the same way that Jesus suffered. We need to have this heart. We need to realize that things in this world are perishing, and we have a better possession. We have an abiding one, and That's the reason why they were able to joyfully give up their property. It's at the end of verse 34. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. They're looking to heaven. They're looking at their home in heaven. They're looking to Christ and they're saying, we can give this up. It's like Pastor Joe says, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. You can't take it with you. 
It's his money. It's, they're his possessions. And it's his life. Our life is his. And if the world wants to take it away for our Christian faith, we should willingly be ready to give it up for him. And that's what the author of the, to the Hebrews is saying. Remember those former days, the great conflict, the sufferings, they made a theater of you, put you in front, laughed at you, mocked you, tribulations, and then they even took your property, but you yourselves stayed strong. You rejoiced, you endured. Remember those days? Now get to verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't get comfortable. Don't say, oh, we were doing well, so we're good. We're just going to sit back. We don't need to keep striving in our faith. We don't need to stay diligent. We're, gonna, we're good now. Kind of like that once saved, always saved doctrine. Yeah, the former days. Remember, I walked up the aisle. I gave my life to the Lord. Now I'm good. And now I just live however I want. He's saying, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may re- receive what was promised. You still need endurance. You endured, all these horrible things happened to you, and you stayed faithful. Continue. Continue to remain. Continue to abide. Continue to be steadfast. Continue to endure. How did this marathon runner feel at mile 300? You think you felt like giving up? I mean, if I'm hallucinating, weaving in and out, I haven't slept for several days, I'm going to feel like giving up. What was the only thing that he was going to allow him to stop? Death or passing out, that's what I figure. And we should have that same mentality in our lives with the Lord. I'm going to keep moving forward no matter what comes my way in life. Like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. If you have that mindset, you can endure anything in this world. Because to go be with Christ is very much better. And to, to be with Christ, for, to live as Christ and to die is gain. If that's your mentality, you can undergo and endure anything. One missionary said, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He might look foolish to the world, but in God's eyes, his love is upon us. So do not throw away your confidence. Continue to strive ahead. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, as I mentioned earlier, it mentions Abel, mentions Enoch, it mentions Noah, mentions Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. They all went ahead of you. They all went through trials as well. Let's look at verses 33 through 38. It speaks of this great cloud of witnesses who by faith, that's Hebrews eleven thirty-three, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. In our race, in our enduring, we will do great things for the Lord. We will conquer, we will be victorious as they were. We will win many battles. We will be rejoicing many times in the faith. But keep reading. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. I love verse 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. To the world, they looked like nobodies. They looked foolish. They looked like a bunch of idiots. But according to God, they're men of whom the world is not worthy. They're champions in God's eyes. You go to Cooperstown for the Baseball Hall of Fame and you see all the plaques of all these great baseball players, Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle, and you walk through there and -and so-and-so hit this many home runs and -and so-and-so hit this many RBIs and this guy played this many games straight without like Cal Ripken, all these games in a row, and it's amazing, right? And what God's saying is this Hall of Fame shatters that Hall of Fame. All these men, through faith, through endurance, did amazing things. They stayed strong until the end. You get to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? In light of the great cloud of witnesses, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's as if the writer to the Hebrews is taking us through this shrine, so to speak, of the Faith Hall of Fame. And he's saying, look at all these amazing Christians or amazing believers before Christ. Look at how they stood firm in the faith. Look at what they did because of God. Even though they were weak, God made them strong. Strive for the prize as they did. And you get to verse 2 of chapter 12, and here's our main example. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Talks about endurance in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Consider Christ. Add these things up. Consider. Analyze. Do the math. Consider what Jesus went through. Consider the Garden of Gethsemane. Consider when he's crying out to the Father with loud cries and the Father heard him. And he said, not my will, your will be done. You get to verse four, it says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus' capillaries burst. He's in the garden. The battle to not go forward, the battle to not go to the cross. Jesus said, if you can take this cup from me, Father, let this cup pass from me, if there can be any other way. And he said, yet not my will, your will be done. And we can see that in our lives. Lord, I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this difficulty. This temptation continues to harass me. And Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, three times he cried out to the Lord. He had a thorn in the flesh. Three times he cried out. I brought this up at the men's retreat. And it says he cried out to the Lord that he would remove that thorn. And what did the Lord respond? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And he goes on to say, therefore most gladly, I will take pleasure in weaknesses and in insults and in difficulties and in persecutions for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He said, okay, you want me to keep this thorn? I'm going to go forward. And Jesus said in the garden, three times he was pleading with the Father. 
Three times he went back to Peter, I think it was James and John, and he said, wake up, pray with me. They were asleep. He went back and prayed. He went back again, wake up, pray with me. Three times he cried out to the Father, and the Father said, go forward, go to the cross for the sins of the world. That is why you came. That is your mission. And in John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. He said, I'm going forward and praise God, he went forward. He finished the course. He kept the faith. He had his eyes on the prize, the joy set before him. When the joy is set before us, the joy of eternity, the, the joy of God blessing us in Christ forever, we can endure as well and continue to move forward. We need to strive against sin with all our might. Because he died for us, because he loves us, because he went before us, we now give our lives back to him in return. So in closing... We might not be struggling to go back to the old covenant law, right? I don't know of anyone here who's like, I want to go back and go to the sacrifices and the bulls and the goats down the street and the Jewish system, right? We might not have the same struggle per se, some of these struggles that the Hebrews were going through, but you might be struggling at work. You might have a boss who you're having trouble getting along with. You might, be, you might not be getting paid what you think you should be getting paid. You might have people around you who aren't Christians and all they do all day is talk about things that are anti-Christ, that, are, that aren't of the Lord. I know I experience that at my job. Even though I work with other believers, people come into the rescue mission, as I mentioned earlier, drunk and high and hallucinating and we don't know if they're oppressed or demonically possessed. We don't know what's going on but you'll hear more F-bombs in a matter of 30 seconds than you've ever heard in your entire life and you're trying to pray in your office and focus on the Lord and you have to drive these things out and you have to keep your eyes on the Lord and you have to keep serving and you have to keep loving and you have to stay in the will of the Lord. We have to endure. You might be struggling at home with kids. You might be struggling to endure temptations, as I mentioned earlier. You go on your computer, you're looking up an article on some Christian website, and something pops up. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, it happens to me. I'm like, here I am on a Christian website, and something's still popping up that's not of the Lord. We live in dark times. An agenda is being pushed in our culture. You cannot go almost anywhere but see anti-Christian sexual immorality innuendos all around us. We need to endure. We need to fix our eyes on Christ. We need to keep running, keep fighting, and as Paul says, fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life. Agonizamai. Are you agonizing for the prize? Are you striving in your fight against sin? And if you say, well, I have fallen lately. I gave in to anger. I gave in to lust. I gave in to pride. I've been festering bitterness or jealousy or whatever it is. Well, the church is a hospital for believers. Here is where we come to find help. We go to Christ, our great high priest, and we find healing. We find forgiveness. We find a perfect savior who loves us and cleanses us. And we say from this point on, I'm striving against sin. I will not turn to the left or to the right. I will hate that which is evil, I will cling to that which is good, and I will forget, as Paul says, I will forget what lies behind, and I will reach on for the prize. I will reach forward to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
I'm not going to keep my eyes in the rearview mirror. I often tell that to the guys at work. How are you going to drive if you're constantly looking at the rearview mirror of your life? You're going to hit someone in front of you. You need to focus on what's ahead. Learn from the past, but don't meditate on it. Don't stay there. And when the enemy comes knocking at your door and he wants to keep having you relive your past or your past sins or your past failures, you say like Paul, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards a goal for the prize. I'm moving forward. I'm in the race. I can see the finish line. And by God's help and God's grace and the Holy Spirit living in me, I'm getting there. And I'm taking as many people with me. I'm going to be like these Hebrews who shared, who they had that koinonia, that fellowship together in helping each other move forward and enduring. Are we doing that together? That's my prayer for you and I, that we'll join together arm in arm and keep moving forward in the Lord. No matter how dark this world gets, that we will bind one another in our hearts, that we'll be knit together in our hearts as Jesus and his high priestly prayer prayed that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one, that we would be united in the faith, moving forward in him. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Remember that God's way, God's will, is better than anything this world has to offer. Don't buy the lie of the enemy. Don't think sin will fulfill you, it never will. Only Christ will fulfill us. Amen? Love you guys. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word.